Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today's dialogue is about participatory ecological governance, the Northeast Great Waters Restoration Initiative. And my guest is Peter Alexander. Hello, Peter. Uh, hi, Rob. Let me say a few words about who you are and where the Northeast Great Waters are. For the past three years, Peter Alexander has been leading the Gulf of Maine Habitat Restoration Initiative. And that expanded just last year to include all of Cape Cod and Rhode Island. So it's now referred to, it's now the New England Coast. Restoration, restoration Initiative. Right. And in this process, Peter worked closely with leading representatives from state and federal agencies, with not the nonprofit community, and with members of Congress in Washington, building awareness and consensus on the region's restoration needs. Peter is also a founding member of the America's Great Waters Coalition, and the America's Great Water Coalition represents 19 major waterways uh, from the Gulf of Maine to Puget Sound to the Great Lakes, including uh, Chesapeake Bay and other uh, waterways. Uh, Peter Alexander has a master's degree in environmental studies. Peter, is that from Antioch, New England? Yes, it is. Yay. Uh, in, this, in his spare time, he is a professional musician and serves as president of the Maine Songwriters Association. Uh, welcome, Peter. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Great introduction. Yeah. Uh, so are you on the coast of Maine right now? Uh, yes, I'm actually standing in my, my living room uh, in Bath, Maine, on the Kennebec River, uh, just a few miles from the Casco Bay. Lucky and you. I, 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 I was lucky. Uh, I'm still maritime, but... I, I tell people jokingly that I grew up on a tiny island uh, near Cundy's Harbor in the Casco Bay, but spent the school year in Washington, D.C. So it's not exactly uh, truthful, but it is truthful at the same time. And it, it, what it really does is it reflects my enormous love uh, and attachment to the coastal ecosystem up here. I spent all my childhood summers on the water and... Uh, Everything that I do related to uh, the Gulf of Maine and my passion for this work is driven by my love of being on the water, of sailing and boating and, uh, you know, having a living off the grid on this little island that uh, we still have a little cottage on this island uh, near, near Cundy's Harbor. So Reminds me of Rachel Carson coming down the coast of Maine. <laughs> well, you know, her place was uh, just right around the corner from us. Right. Uh, just up the coast a few miles, so, yeah. Uh, uh, and I share that. Even though I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, I am also on the Gulf of Maine, and 
many many people don't realize that the Gulf of Maine is a distinct body of water, you know, bookend by Nova Scotia and Massachusetts and Cape Cod. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's an enclosed area of water where you have like 7,500 miles of coastline if you, you know, straighten all the, if you, if you don't get into the bays and stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then off the coast you have the George's Banks reaching up toward Nova Scotia and you have Brown's Banks coming down from Nova Scotia. So there's only a 35 or 36 mile deep channel into the Gulf of Maine. So much of the marine life just rotates around inside the Gulf. Isn't that right? Uh, yeah, there, there are definitely um, a rotating current uh, that runs up along the shore of uh, Nova Scotia and then uh, down along the coast of Maine and circulating through Boston, you know, Boston Harbor and along Cape Cod is sort of this long rotation. But uh, I think people maybe understand a little more easily the concept of the, the New England coastal uh, region. Uh, we we yes. think of, when you think of Gulf of Maine, you think lobsters probably, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a, such an abundance of very, very important uh, fish and wildlife um, species that are um, really critical to the regional economy. And... Uh, the, what, what we saw happening was that um, Gulf of Maine, because it's va- you know Maine is vacation land and the, it's considered by many to be the sort of pristine ecosystem that is uh, almost has a, almost like untouched by man. But that's very much not the case. Uh, there's a lot of uh, repercussions from 200 plus years of unplanned development and industrialization along the coast, uh, and not only just the coast, but the watershed, uh, where over the last 150 years, especially, lots of dams were put up along the streams and rivers uh, along the entire uh, seaboard, uh, blocking uh, migratory fish habitat and having very severe implications for the uh, reproduction of really important species of fish commercial and re- uh, recreational fisheries. So uh, there are many, many problems up here uh, re- with regard to water quality and other stuff that most people simply weren't aware of. You know, No, that's right. And as you said, you have the watershed of the Merrimack River, the Saco River, the Penobscot, the Kennebec, and then the St. John's River is bigger than all of them together, and they're all draining vast areas of peopled landscapes. And, you know, it's great for the lobsters to have an enclosed system, a gyre turning where the, the lobster nopoli settle back. They all stay in the Gulf of Maine. They don't start moving down the coast toward Florida or something. But the problem is is that the pollutants we put into the water, they don't go away either, do they? That's correct. Uh, and they, they tend to accumulate. Uh, and in, in certain estuary and areas, uh, like um, Great Bay in, in uh, New Hampshire, the the cleansing function of the tidal flows uh, really does not work very effectively. So whatever gets put in there pretty much stays there uh, and can build up over time and have very detrimental uh, impacts on uh, long-term water quality and marine life. So, uh, you know, we, we, there's a lot of things that can be done. One thing, uh, it, it's really important to, to note right up front that there are the initiative that, that 
I've been working on is not a management, a fisheries management uh, initiative or anything having to do with um, enforcement regulations, uh, policy like that. It has to do with addressing 200-plus years of impacts to the ecosystem that have accumulated during that time and are having very significant detrimental effects on current water quality and, and current uh, uh, fish and wildlife habitat. And I mentioned the dams. Uh, there's thousands, literally thousands of dams. When you start realizing the scale of this problem and the potential costs involved, uh, it, it really is almost mind-boggling. Uh, and, and the idea that the Gulf of Maine is a pristine ecosystem or that the New England coastal waters are pristine really starts flying out the window when you when you realize the implications of, of what's been going on here for the last couple hundred years. So, it is flying out the window when you encounter ocean dead zones, and we have a number along the New England waters. The Casco Bay Keeper told me about seeing striped bass chasing uh, bait fish, and both bass and bait fish swam into a hypoxic ocean dead zone, and they all rolled up dead because there was no oxygen there. Wow. Um, yeah, Joe Payne from Casco Bay, the Bay, Casco Bay Keeper is very... That's a Joe Payne, yeah. Yeah, he's a very powerful and articulate spokesperson uh, for the region. And so not only is the dams a problem, we have problems with too much nutrients and nitrogen and phosphorus, mostly nitrogen coming down off of fertilizing fields and septic systems and sewage. And um, it all, you know, gets eaten up by the algae and the dinoflagellates and... Uh, so your initiative is really about educating people so that we can adjust our practices on the land as much as our practices on the sea. Well, it, it has a, a good deal to do with that, uh, but really what we're looking at more is infrastructure issues. We're, I mean, human behavior, you know, how people put fertilizer on their yards and fields and that sort of thing is extremely important, but it's a lower level of focus for the initiative that we're working on we, that stuff needs to be done, and that, that gets back more to regulation and education and um, enforcement of, of, of uh, regulatory uh, features and so forth. And what we're looking at is more like infrastructure, spades in the earth, job-creating initiatives, such as removing dams or installing fish ladders, uh, repairing and upgrading uh, stormwater and wastewater uh, sewage systems. Excellent. Uh, in the, in the city of Portland, for example, there are 33 different points uh, where, during heavy rainstorms, rainwater running down off the streets and into the storm sewers mixes with the municipal waste system and washes raw sewage right out into Casco Bay. And that's called a combined sewage overflow. It's because the infrastructure was built that way to save money decades ago. Uh, and only a few of those uh, spots have been upgraded to separate the stormwater from the wastewater, the municipal waste streams. So that is an extremely expensive thing to fix, and that problem is, you know, very visible in Portland. I mean, you can sit on a, one of the boats, you can sit on a ferry boat uh, in a rainstorm uh, at the Portland Harbor and see the stuff washing out from underneath the piers. It is <laughs> quite an unpleasant sight. 
but uh, that's that's the kind of impact that is all the way up and down the coast. So we're looking for the federal government to step in here. Is in addition to whatever the states are able to do, these are societal problems. These are problems that are created by the fact that we've got uh, tens of millions of people living uh, on the coastal area and have been here for uh, two, three hundred years, and there's a lot of impacts that have to be remedied. Uh, yes, culverts, road crossings. This is, I mean, there's thousands of dams, but there's tens of thousands of improperly installed culverts where stream flows are interrupted and migratory fish can't get up. So the stream habitat where they normally spawn is cut off to them. And, you know, I've been working on this thing for three years, and only recently did I hear the actual figures that less than 5% of the prime spawning habitat for the migratory fish that come up the main rivers and streams is available to those migratory species because they've been cut off uh, because of improperly installed culverts and dams that were put up over the last 150 years or so, many of them agricultural dams where, you know, a farmer put up a dam and created a, a pond for his cattle or for irrigation purposes. And many of those are no longer in use. There are many municipal dams that are no longer in use. They may have been hydroelectric at one point, uh, but no longer in use or in such low use that the benefits of the hydro are less than the benefits of returning the habitat to the commercially valuable species of fish. Absolutely, and there are ways to address it without having to take down the dam, because that's, that's an expense that no one often wants to bear, but sometimes there are less expensive ways to have uh, enable the fish to surmount that obstacle. Uh, that is true. It depends on the kind of fish. You know, some fish can jump. You know, Atlantic salmon can jump up uh, fish ladders and so forth, but other fish aren't able to do that, so it has to be specific to the species sometimes. But the advantage of it is that, and this is an angle that people often don't look at, they think, well, it's a huge cost. Yes, it really is, but the investment in fixing those problems pays off in huge ways by bringing money into the economy, creating jobs, restoring commercially important fisheries uh, uh, and improving water quality and a whole raft of benefits that can actually be measured by economic terms as being very, very helpful to society. And so you started with a uh, Gulf of Maine perspective and you kind of expanded. <laughs> That's an understatement. Uh, yes. But for the for tactical purposes, it made a lot of sense to combine the Gulf of Maine plan with the Rhode Island plan that parallels uh, the plan we created. The Gulf of Maine plan was created uh, starting in 2008. It was an informal um, collaboration of state and federal uh, agency officials and nonprofit interests uh, and other stakeholders uh, that met had a series of meetings over the over a two-year period and ended up publishing in December 2010 a fairly comprehensive needs assessment. I would I'd call it a needs assessment more than a plan because it doesn't actually lay out the priorities or the order of things. It just says, here's what 
the scope and scale of the problems are, and here's the dollar amount that we predict is going to be needed in order to remedy these issues. And if you take the Rhode Island plan and the Gulf of Maine plan together, which we have now combined them effectively, uh, it calls for a little over $4 billion within the first five years, which is as far out as they could reliably predict, and a projection of investment needed at that same rate for up to 20 years. So they're looking at about a $20 billion plan. Interestingly, that is the same dollar figure as the as a um, presidentially uh, convened task force for the Great Lakes came up with in 2004. They came up with a Great Lakes regional strategy that estimated between 20 and 26 billion dollars needed for addressing the ecological issues in the Great Lakes. Many of which, by the way, are the same. All right. Tell us about that. I mean, why does it cost so much money? And I assume that the expensive items are found in both environments. Yes. Uh, the most expensive items in, in every case are the stormwater and wastewater infrastructure. Uh, those, that's those combined sewer overflows you were talking about. Yes, exactly. That's where you're dealing with major infrastructure stuff. Uh, but again, that's where you're also creating a whole lot of jobs. The second biggest issue uh, is in um, fish and wildlife habitat. And uh, that is what we've just been talking about, making sure that you restore uh, the stream connectivity is a, the wonky word they use, uh, where the fish can actually get past barriers in the stream, whether that's a dam or whether it's a, a culvert. Uh, at a road crossing, they need to restore those the connectivity to the spawning grounds. And the most valuable spawning grounds are often way up high at the very top end of the watershed. You know, we, we all see this, uh, we sort of understand this from whatever nature shows we've watched about salmon on the West Coast. You know, they go up these streams way up into the shallows where the brown bears are there grabbing them out of the water. I mean, there's iconic images of, you know, the salmon runs. But the salmon runs go way, way up into the inland streams, into the shallows, way up at the top of the waterhead, uh, watershed. And that's the same thing uh, with the most valuable spawning grounds for the fish on the Atlantic coast. And a lot of those have been cut off. And that's so, really important because that's a carbon highway of bringing ocean carbon up the rivers up to the headwaters and forests of New England, and they have found that minerals that are only in the ocean are only brought up into these forests, like boron and stuff, through migratory fish. And when you take out those fish by dams or whatever, the forest is poor because of it. Well, you know more about it than I do, Rob. <laughs> that was not a radio show. You guys can look it up in our past episodes. But we've had some uh, fish ecologists who've um, gone on quite a bit about the uh, carbon highway and how it's important that uh, we reconnect our ecosystems. Well, yeah, but I, in, in my work, um, I do a lot of work in communications and outreach, and uh, it's really important to... I have found to to frame these things in terms that um, make sense to the average person. So if you talk about increasing uh, stocks of of, um, 
of recreational and commercially valuable fish, that makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, returning the health of the forests is really important, the health of uh, water quality. People understand that really, really basically. Uh, I mean, that's really fundamental stuff, and everybody gets that. And uh, economic development, investing money in, in uh, jobs, that, I mean, uh, in uh, projects that create jobs, everybody understands that. It's very simple. And uh, so what we're asking for is actually, is actually an, an economic development strategy that has environmental benefits. Peter, we're going to have to hold that thought and come back right after this break. Thank you, Rob. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Peter Alexander, and we're talking about saving great waters of the Gulf of Maine, uh, Narragansett Bay and Rhode Island waters, uh, and even and similar big waters. Um, Peter, where did uh, these idea, this idea for uh, great waters, where did that initiative, where did that all come from? Or how did we well, get started in this path? It, it really started, I would say, with an extraordinarily successful initiative for the Great Lakes that I was involved in starting in 2005. 
the initiative actually began in 2004 during the presidential um, election cycle when the, uh, George Bush wanted to do a favor to the governors of the Great Lakes states uh, and uh, by executive order convened an interagency task force to come up with a comprehensive restoration plan for the Great Lakes. People will remember that the Great Lakes have suffered over the years from incredible problems like rivers catching fire and dead zones in Lake Erie and uh, all sorts of industrial toxins trapped in sediments, toxic sites all around the lakes, all sorts of stuff like that. Pretty severe issues, and they're pretty high profile, especially after the Cuyahoga River caught fire. And so um, this task force convened, uh, and over a period of about a year, came up with a 20 to $26 billion restoration strategy, which, of course, the government was would have been happy to put on the shelf. Uh, but the nonprofit community uh, got involved, and one foundation in particular um, made a huge commitment. They committed to fund the development of a coalition at the tune of a million dollars a year for five years, uh, and the coalition was led by the National Wildlife Federation and the National Parks Conservation Association. Uh, ended up um, being over a hundred different nonprofit organizations around the Great Lakes. Uh, very organized, highly organized, uh, and very effective campaign. In the fifth year of the campaign, uh, Congress uh, enacted the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative and funded it with a $475 million down payment, uh, followed last year by a $300 and, I think a $325 million, and in this year's budget, a $300 million appropriation. So that's over a billion dollars already that has been uh, earmarked, that's the wrong word, appropriated uh, for restoration of the Great Lakes. I was involved in that initiative, very deeply in, engaged helping develop the communication strategies and, and overseeing a lot of public opinion research to help inform the coalition how it can most effectively reach uh, a broad constituent audience um, and get Congress to take notice enough to take action. And uh, based on my experiences there, when I moved back to Maine in 2008, uh, and realized that there was nothing comparable going on here, although similar things were happening in other parts of the country. We all know about the Everglades and the Missouri River and, and Puget Sound got a $50 million appropriation that same year, and quite a few other of these regional water bodies were getting the attention of Congress, but the Gulf of Maine and the New England coast was not. Hmm. And... Uh, I managed to, in, in conversations with colleagues at the Gulf of Maine Council and the Northeast Regional Ocean Council and the State Planning Office of Maine and other folks that uh, I got to know uh, very quickly uh, when I moved back here, uh, managed to convince them to, to come together and, and work together uh, to create a similar plan uh, for the region here, specifically starting with the Gulf of Maine, but quickly incorporating Rhode Island, uh, that would put us on the same scale uh, as the other giant ecosystems like the Great Lakes that already had the attention of Congress. And uh, it took us two years. Uh, in December of 2010, we released the U.S. 
Gulf of Maine Habitat Restoration and Conservation Plan. Leave it to a bunch of government officials to come up with a name like that. But <laughs> it <laughs> pretty well describes what it is. That's available, by the way. Anybody can download that. It's, it's not a very long or wonky document. Uh, people can read it, and even a, even a sixth grader could read and understand what's in that plan. Uh, it identifies the major issues uh, having to do with uh, water quality, habitat, the need for some increased investment in science and research and communication, the need to deal with uh, invasive species, which is a growing problem, and the need to uh, take adaptive management approaches and planning for uh, the impacts of climate change, most specifically sea level rise, uh, because every coastal community in the country uh, is going to be and is already being impacted uh, by uh, higher tides, higher flood tides are already flooding the streets of downtown Portland. And uh, there's, there's some very, very significant issues that another foot or two of sea rise over the next 20 or 30 years is, is you know, going to cause some really major readjustment of uh, the human infrastructure. So those yeah. are the major issues. And uh, the plan, the, the two plans together combined uh, for, like I said, $4 billion in short-term investment over the first five years and long-term prediction of about $20 billion over 20 years. And again, I want to reiterate that that is job-creating money. That's not money down the tubes. Uh, that is job-creating money that will stimulate the economy and do a lot of good for a lot of people, as, as well as for a lot of fish. Peter, could you tell us a little more about what you meant by adaptive management and then tie that back to jobs or something? Well, if you look, there's a lot of communities uh, that are very low-lying, a lot of beach communities uh, like Kennebunkport and I mean, there's tons of them up and down the coast uh, where the human infrastructure, roads and houses and, and commercial buildings are just a few feet above the, the high tide level. And as, tides as the sea level rises and the, tides, the high tides increase, especially during storm events when those effects are exaggerated, sometimes giant exaggeration, uh, yes. you're putting all of that infrastructure at risk. So you're going to have roads that are flooded. You're going to have houses whose foundations are undermined or the houses are flooded or, or fall down. The same with commercial buildings. You have vast amounts of human-created infrastructure that is at risk of becoming obsolete uh, or becoming destroyed. So there have to be some adaptive management plans for dealing with that. Uh, you know, in, in Holland, they built dikes around everything. I'm not sure that's <laughs> the best strategy for the, you know, for the New England coast, but it probably is going to mean um, reconfiguring some of our human infrastructure. We, we may have to... And FEMA is already doing this, by the way. They're redefining what the flood maps say. And that has communities up and down the coast, uh, many of them up in arms. Uh, yes. I know in Portland, for example, the FEMA maps in Portland uh, put a whole bunch of properties inside the flood zones, the high tide marks, 
And that has dr- dramatic implications for insurance companies um, and for the insurability of those properties. And, you know, when you take away the ability to insure a property, you take away its commercial value. Uh, so, and in the meantime, are, you the, the homeowners or the land front people are seeing skyrocketing costs in their insurance. That's correct. So these things driven are, by these maps. This is this is not some and it's not some you know left wing conspiracy. Uh, the facts and figures speak for themselves, and the real impacts are predicted by one of the most conservative industries in the country, which is the insurance industry. Uh, so. You know, these, these things are very real, and people in the planning of the states up and down and the federal agencies are highly aware that some adaptive management plans need to be developed. So most, uh, and yet, most of the states have some kind of a climate plan, um, but, uh, you know, we're, the, the, the plan that we're created or the needs assessment that we created for the region does call for increased investment in that kind of planning. And so the New England Coast Habitat uh, Restoration Initiative will help bring different stakeholders together and into that planning process? That's the plan, yes. And that, that's what we would predict. But none of those things happen without some, some investment. And the states invest in it, and we're calling on the federal government to step up to the plate and, and make a, a much more significant investment. Well, we have learned the hard way, whether it be Boston Harbor or a bigger body of water, that if you just have the experts try to solve it, the solution is um, not as good as if you work hard to bring in a great diversity of stakeholders, that in that diversity you should end up with more robust solutions and more robust approaches than um, a, a smaller group could devise on their own. Yeah, that's correct. And so that but that means it takes longer and therefore it's going to take some money and but that makes it worth the input, worth people spending the time with it well congress recognizes this and um, it's interesting in the 2012 um, appropriations budget uh, or an appropriations bill i should say for the EPA and the interior department um, there is committee report language that um, suggests in rather strong terms, it's not a mandate, but it's a very strong recommendation that a consortium uh, be formed, uh, led by EPA, that engages all the relevant state and federal agencies uh, in and stakeholders, which means businesses, nonprofits, and homeowners, uh, you know, people who are participants or enjoy the benefits or the vulnerabilities of the ecosystem uh, to participate in a planning process to determine what needs need to be addressed and how they should be addressed and in what priority and so forth. So we regard this as a, a giant invitation. I mean, it would be, the language was aimed at what they call the Southern New England Ocean, uh, which is a is pretty much... Buzzer, um, um, Narragansett, Rhode Island, yeah, Narragansett Bay, and and the the coastal waters of Rhode Island and Southern Cape Cod. Uh, we're hoping that uh, the EPA, in its wisdom, uh, will expand that initiative. I mean, the, the EPA is not required to do anything. The, the language in the committee report is not a mandate, 
but it's a strong suggestion. And uh, we're holding a conference tomorrow, uh, that is January 12th, uh, down at Wells Reserve in Wells, Maine, uh, at which members of the EPA, NOAA, uh, USDA, uh, and other federal agencies, along with a whole slew of state agencies and nonprofits and business interests, are all coming together. Uh, one of the things we'll be exploring is uh, can that recommendation in the EPA budget bill be expanded to incorporate the entire New England coast? And can we thus engage the administration? Uh, and I make a big distinction between the administration and Congress. EPA is a function of the administration, whereas Congress, you know, gives them the budget and the money that they have to do their work with and can dictate to a certain extent uh, what they do with it. But um, we want the administration and Congress both to take this, the needs of the region here very seriously and to take appropriate action. We want the president to include a line item in, in his budget for restoration of the New England coastal region. And we want Congress to appropriate funds accordingly. So the whole yes. legislative process is pretty tricky. We can talk about that a little if you like. Where would you like to go from here? <laughs> you want to go well, there or you want to go on to, uh, well, you should say a little more about the summit. Well, the summit, like I said, we, we have so far about 65 key people registered, and these are the heads of state and federal agencies, or at least the heads of pro programmatic heads in state and federal agencies, uh, representatives from the nonprofit sector, uh, many of the most, the largest and best known of the uh, conservation organizations like the Nature Conservancy, Audubon, uh, Sierra Club, um, National Wildlife Federation, and then a whole bunch of more local ones like Friends of Casco Bay uh, will be participating uh, either in person or if the snow is real bad tomorrow, as we, the weather report seems to get worse and worse as the hours go on, by conference call or, or video uh, participation. We've created a video link. So, and this uh, is just a peak of your pyramid of people that are, or maybe not a pyramid, of, of the collection of the different uh, participants in this whole process. Aren't there like 400 people or 400 groups that people in there groups, are, I guess? Uh, are? There, there are about 400 people and organizations that have been involved in various ways uh, and through the communication uh, uh, networks that we've created during the last three years. Uh, so our invitation Impressive. list. Yeah, that's good. Our invitation list was uh, over 400 people. And the meeting, the summit is... It's an open meeting, so if you didn't get your invitation or you lost it in the mail, you know, uh, you can contact Peter. How do people reach you? Well, uh, Peter at PeterAlexander.us, or better, uh, they can go and learn about the initiative on the Northeast Great Waters website, and that is www.northeastgreatwaters.org. And that's all one word, all lowercase, a big string of letters, northeastgreatwaters.org. Okay, we'll take a break so everyone can run to their computers and do that during the break. We'll be right back with Peter Alexander.
making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. This is the Voice America Green Living Channel. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Peter Alexander about participatory ecological governance and how we plan and cooperatively manage our great waters. Uh, Peter, in the introduction, I mentioned that you are a co-founder of America's Great Waters Coalition. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, um, this, there was an initiative that pretty much started uh, out of the success of the Great Lakes and the recognition that there were a lot of individual great waters uh, seeking federal recognition and federal appropriations that were not working together. Uh, you had Puget Sound that had its own little thing going on and, and uh, San Francisco Bay and the Florida Everglades, and yet many of these organizations uh, or many of these local initiatives or regional initiatives shared some of the same organizational affiliations. National Wildlife Federation, for example, is very, very active in the Chesapeake Bay, in the Great Lakes, um, in, in Florida, in the Louisiana coast. And uh, some of the larger organizations that have national reach um, started talking, uh, and we convened a planning conference in um, June of 2009, 
where we brought a bunch of representatives from, um, I think initially there were nine major aquatic ecosystems represented at that meeting, uh, like the Chesapeake Bay, uh, like the Great Lakes, Gulf of Maine, uh, the ones I've already mentioned. And uh, we... Oh, but also the Ohio River and the Missouri River? That's correct. Uh, Missouri River came later, and the Ohio River came later. They weren't part of the first nine. Oh, uh, sorry. Were, Go ahead. There are now 19 of these identified Great Waters ecosystems that are part of the America's Great Waters Coalition. And by part, it means they have representatives from those ecosystems have a seat on the steering committee, and we have both short-term and long-term strategies. One of our short-term strategies is to partner with a lot of the freshwater advocates, uh, not so much for restoration as for protection against uh, acts of Congress uh, that are incredibly detrimental to, in their implications to water quality uh, and the quality of life for people around these great waters ecosystems. There are so local river keepers and water watchers are getting hammered by uh, coming out of Washington. That, that we have a very, very uh, knee-jerk approach in Washington, D.C. right now among, uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to take political sides here, but the facts are on the table. Uh, there's a lot of uh, very radical... Uh, extremist, um, industry-friendly uh, uh, legislators in Congress right now who are standing up for the privileges of chicken, massive giant chicken farmers uh, in the Chesapeake Bay area, for example, that they want to allow them to continue polluting the Chesapeake Bay. And they've got, they're trying to insert riders into uh, appropriations bills amendments, I should say, uh, they call them riders down there, uh, that would prohibit the EPA from enforcing its own regulations regarding chicken manure flowing into uh, the Chesapeake Bay, things like that. And the, the Clean Water Act, which is the, the, signature, the signature change in America's approach to its own fresh water, uh, resources was the Clean Water Act, and as Americans, we have benefited so enormously from the enforcement of the provisions in the Clean Water Act by the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, which was created, interestingly enough, under um, Nixon's administration, although not with a lot of Nixon's support, kind of over his objections, but they created it. It was seen as so important. It's still so important, uh, but there are some industry representatives in Congress who are trying to decimate the key provisions of the Clean Water Act and deny the Environmental Protection Agency the ability to do its job in protecting these vital resources for the benefit of the American people. So we yeah. see this as a, a front and center uh, issue that the America's Great Waters Coalition because we have such broad representation, we're a national coalition of organizations that have deep roots in uh, the, our uh, respective ecosystems, that we have a, can have a very effective voice in preventing that sort of bad thing from happening. And you provide a unified voice. We all come together on common goals, and that's, that helps the that's politicians correct. better understand you know, what to do. That is exactly right. 
however, I should say that our main priority, and when we first got together, our main priority was not uh, necessarily protecting the freshwater ecosystems or the freshwater resources, because there's so many other organizations that already have that as their top priority. Our priority and our niche is to focus on restoration, where the ecosystems have been damaged, as they have been, as I described earlier, the damage to the, to the Gulf of Maine and the damage to the Great Lakes is pretty profound, and it takes a huge um, investment of state and federal and nonprofit uh, and uh, in industrial money to fix those problems. And our coalition is our real focus and our real bailiwick is to ensure that the American public and its representatives in Congress, most especially, are aware of the urgency of the need and of the enormous benefits that accrue from investment in restoring these critical ecosystems. Absolutely. And then you could take the next step to galvanize public support for that restoration. That is correct. And we do that. We have both a, a grass tops and a grassroots strategy. And when we use the word grass tops, we're talking about opinion leaders, uh, members of Congress, um, organizational uh, heads, uh, in both industry and commerce, we're talking about one of the things that everybody understands, by the way, and can get on the same wavelength with is restoration. In our experience with the Great Lakes, as long as we focused on restoration and did not focus on policy issues of regulation and enforcement, but instead focused on fixing up the problems that were created, the legacy issues of toxins in the environment, of failing and dysfunctional sewage systems and so forth. Those are legacy issues. When we focus on restoration, everybody is holding hands and marching in the same direction. We had members of the Sierra Club arm-in-arm arm with members of the Chambers of Commerce and the Industries Associations in the Great Lakes. And who would ever think that they'd all be on the same side of the table? But by focusing right. on restoration, we bring everybody together. And you need a lot of people again because it's more complicated to bring about restoration than just to stop a drain pipe or something. It's, it's a lot more complicated, and it requires these uh, meetings, such as the one, the summit meeting that you're having for just the northeast region. Uh, yes. It requires a lot of listening to other concerns and uh, balancing and engaging uh, all the different uh, points of view and needs, you know, there, it, it always astounds me how many differing needs and, and users there are of, say, ocean sections right. that uh, we don't first think about, and then we forget, oh, my gosh, of course they need that. You know, mm -hmm. transportation um, and, and uh, getting, uh, you know, appropriate uh, ships moving about on the seas and stuff. And, well, and there's infrastructure issues like uh, recreational vehicles coming into a port where they don't have a sewage disposal system. And, and some exactly. communities the, the, and states have created legislation around that where they can't discharge their, you know, their wastewater. I mean, if you, if you, you got yeah. people on a, on a passenger boat, uh, a princess cruise or something, you get a thousand people and they're using the toilets and those boats come into a harbor and empty their tanks, 
you got a major source of pollution right there in the harbor. So there are some regulatory issues, but there's also infrastructure. There are now a lot of the uh, marinas, for example, are installing pump-outs, and there are pump-out boats that will go out to recreational vehicles and fishing vehicles and, and yachts, uh, you know, not of the scale of a Princess Cruise, but, you know, uh, um, smaller boats. Yeah. Uh, and they will actually provide a, yeah, they p- provide a pump-out service. Well, that's infrastructure. It takes money. It's an investment. But it has a huge payoff, and it creates jobs at the same time. So we're looking at infrastructure. We're looking well, good at you, because it really requires your foresightedness to... This is the problem with the Steamship Authority transporting people from Nantucket and the Vineyard back to Cape Cod, is that their uh, sewage system is based on salt water, and so they can't just put it into the Cape Cod sewage treatment plant. Uh, so they have to raise some infrastructure money to install freshwater systems on a saltwater boat. And these kinds of things take forethought and, uh, and collaborative efforts in order to get attention from the policymakers and the and the decision makers in Washington to allocate the funds to help with, because these are national resources, as you said. You know, the 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 pollution in Casco Bay or Nantucket Sound shouldn't be borne just by the residents who happen to find themselves living there in the winter time, but should be, um, you know, because it's used by people from all over the nation. Yes. Well, let's get back to the Great Waters Coalition for a moment, because yeah. a, a key. Uh, role of the coalition uh, is a, a key campaign goal of the coalition is to raise the awareness of the public specifically to raise awareness in Congress of the need and the benefit of restoring these uh, vital aquatic ecosystems, these waterways that are so vital for drinking water, for recreation, for fisheries, for food, for recreational fishing, vacationing. I mean, there's a whole slew of activities that uh, are highly dependent upon the viability of uh, these waterways. Let me give you an example. Uh, in Portland, the city of Portland, Maine, the east end uh, of Portland. Peter, Peter excuse yeah. me, we're, we're running short on time, ah, and okay. I want you to have time to conclude about the, uh, the northeast or New England coastal. Okay. Um, so shall we hold off on this example, or do you want to lead sure. it into the collusion or something? Uh, well, do we have another section, or are we at the end of the show here? Yeah, we're, at the, we're coming up to the end of the show. Oh, good, good. Well, uh, the coalition, I'm sorry, the, the summit that we're holding in Wells tomorrow on the 12th of January is aimed at raising awareness about the needs of the Gulf of Maine. The summit was requested by uh, congressional staff so that they could get a better handle on what our needs really are and how much support there is for implementation of these restoration plans that we've worked so hard to create. So we're very pleased that we have a very excellent registration. Key people mm. are on the panels. We have really, really excellent people on the panels. Uh, there's a statement in itself, just who the panelists are. The agenda for this meeting is available at, at www.northeastgreatwaters.org, as are the restoration plans for the Gulf of Maine and Rhode Island. So we're looking for major participation. There's a lot of people on this listening to this show can do. You can write to your member of Congress. You can write editorials or letters to the editor. You can call uh, or get in touch with me through the website and uh, add your voice to the growing chorus of those uh, who, who know, the science-based people who know 
how important uh, it is and the scale and scope of these problems and how important it is to address them and fix them and restore our great waters in the Northeast. Peter Alexander from northeastgreatwaters.org. Thank you for taking this time to explain the work of Northeast Great Waters and uh, other waters. Thank you, Rob. It's a pleasure having you on the show, and I, I, I've been meaning to tell you how much I like your theme music. Nothing better than the talking heads. Yeah, well, take us to the river. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on the show, and I look forward to seeing you at the summit tomorrow. You bet. And that's it for Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Living Channel. We'll talk again then. Rob